cool. Right, I have uh, I have good intros for both of you, so Uh-oh. get ready. <laughs> What's up, guys? Welcome to a special episode of Chatisfaction. I'm Keith, and I'm joined by two very special guests because we're going to talk about Dark Souls and Bloodborne and Demon Souls because they're the best games ever made. And joining me tonight is the most impressive man I know, Roger Pouncey. Hello. And uh, Encyclopedia Gamica, J.W. Cooksey. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, I was hoping for so, the least impressive man that you know. <laughs> uh, you know, I wanted to be nice about it. Okay, well, cool. We'll, we'll all know that it's uh, it was intended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this episode, we're, we're going to talk about the Souls games, because we love them a lot. Uh, and what I want to do first is just kind of broadly talk about what all the games basically are in like a non-spoilery sense, just in case someone wants to listen and doesn't want anything ruined for them. Just like to quickly give someone a sense of it, and then we'll go into like full spoilers and talk about all the games, however you guys want to do it. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds yeah. nice. Um, so how, if, uh, JW, you want to start, how would you just, uh, briefly describe what the, like in a basic sense, what these games are and why you think they've resonated with people? Um, well, I'm pushing 40. So from my perspective, <laughs> uh, well, they're like dark fantasy action RPGs, um, yeah. that with a focus on combat and a focus on trying i guess to stay balanced uh with a difficulty that to me always felt like a reference or a uh hearkening back to the days of like the nes and and days where when i was a kid you'd go to toys r us or wherever and buy a game or you'd get it for christmas and that was like the game you had for six months (laughs) and beating it was a huge deal there was actual like possibility that you could play it a ton and never beat it. Whereas I feel like over the years, as gaming became more ubiquitous, um, you'd pick up something like Mass Effect, which is a shooter, but is almost like a visual novel in that you sit down with it for a week or two and you know you'll come out the other side having seen the ending. That there's really no chance that the difficulty will be so much that you'll never get there. Um, And that's how most games are. Like if you pick up Skyrim or anything like that. And so when I personally found out about Demon's Souls, hearing that it was like older games as far as difficulty and needing to learn how to play it and get good at it was part of the reason that I ended up picking them up in the first place. So I don't know how true that is for other people, but because of my age, that was a big thing for me. Yeah. Um, I would definitely agree with that. They're just like... It is it is the sort of thing where it's not for everyone, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I, I've definitely tried to get people to play it. And a common thing for people that when it doesn't resonate with people is that it's just they just say this is not why I play games. And I can totally see that. There's mm-hmm. there's people that play games just to kind of zone out. And but I this does speak to me, like you said, to the old era of NES games where they really weren't. Pl- designed to be beat it was it had to be like an undertaking yeah yeah well and that stems from i I don't want to cut you off roger if you were about to talk but but i want to respond to that specifically old games like 
one of the things that I think we've grown out of, like with the industry, is that the old mm. home games came off of the arcades existing, and arcade games were designed with the idea that you wanted people to pump quarters into them. So, like, fail states and needing to continue and redo shit over and over again made the companies who made the games money. And so by the time we got Mario and Donkey Kong and all that stuff on a home system, that was still the mentality, and I think it took a long time for game designers to kind of get out of that mode and go, oh, right, we don't need this to be the case, so there are other ways to design games. So I think some of the easiness of games as it's gone on naturally has stemmed from that kind of evolution. But uh, but yeah, but I think older games' difficulty, it runs the gamut, but I think arcade history is part of the reason for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Roger, what are your thoughts? Um, I like everything that was said so far. Um, <laughs> but also I think what I like about these games um, that's kind of subverts a lot of trends now is that they're they're fairly linear and yeah yeah and, and finite which i like i i think in um all these other games like mass effect or skyrim or whatever that are really great games that are not that challenging but are very long and there's a ton of stuff to do in them i don't ever get i don't know the same depth of love for a lot of them because I don't want to do <laughs> do all that stuff sometimes, and like yeah, once yeah. I do it, it's it's one of a million things that I've done that takes like you know, you know, maybe half an hour to beat. Whereas like with Dark Souls, I might do the same thing over and over again for hours trying to beat it. You know, um, I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes total sense. It, it's like you know, if if you have say Skyrim had a hundred things to do and they all only took me one try and I never got to love all of the areas because I didn't get to do it over and over again. Mm -hmm. But you know, dark souls only has like two or three things to do, but it's hard as shit. And there were all these little things that went into it and I really had to work at it. I grow to love it a lot more. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love about the games, because they, they've been described as open world games, and they they are in a sense, but they are fairly linear, like you said. And the thing is, is they're big open maps, and you can kind of tackle some of them in any order that you want to a degree. But what I like, the games that I like out of the series the most are the ones where the maps fold in on themselves. Yeah. So it starts to feel more open the more you explore it. And... Uh, um. Where was I going with that? <laughs> Do you want to add anything to that, Jado? Yeah. Um, I know I'm, I'm fairly certain. Like, I've never read anything about this being intentional. But I've always felt, because I grew up playing old games, like, when I was 14 was when Super Metroid came out. And I loved Metroid as a little kid, and I watched my dad beat it, and it took me years to be able to beat it. When Super Metroid was coming out, I was, like, reading about it in all the magazines. I was, like, hyped for it. So the day it came out, I bought it just played the shit out of it and it ended up being i think i was probably in my mid-20s the first time i got a hundred percent in that game i was stuck at 96 percent, like knowing where everything was and just knowing that there were a couple of things in the world that i'd never seen before for years uh but i played the fuck out of it and uh it those games like the metroidvania games like followed by super metroid followed by castlevania symphony of the night and then all of its sequels I have felt, starting with Dark Souls, not Demon Souls, 
like these are 3D versions of that. So they are open the way that those games are not stage-based Castlevania games and they're not Mario-style platformers. They're one big place where you you may have multiple paths open to you, but there is a linearity to it because you have to do certain things or unlock certain doors before you can get back to places. And that's how Dark Souls plays. Um, And then to a lesser degree, I feel like Dark Souls 2 is a little more... It's just like a central area with like a bunch of directions you can go. You can kind of go any of them. And then 3 is better is closer to dark souls one and then bloodborne i think does a really good job of doing that again like another metroidvania game but uh but they are they're open but they are very linear like if you don't know where you're going you often only have one or two things you can do but once you've beaten Mm -hmm. them a couple of times like it's not that different from sequence breaking in those older metroidvanias like you can play them very similarly um yeah and rather than like getting power ups or something that is like now I've got this cool gun that lets me shoot through walls and I can get through this place, it's usually just a key or a switch or you beat a certain boss and it unlocks this. Uh, but the premise, like the way it actually f- plays, is the same. It's just presented in a different way. Yeah, one of the things that I really love about it, speaking to just the way you navigate the map and the 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 finite nature of it and the linearity that we spoke to that we spoke of is there's no map in any of these games and it feels super appropriate. Like at no point did I ever wish for one because the fact of you get, you have to play through it and you fuck up a lot, but you also learn the lay of the land. And when you have played through the game, uh, at least even, you know, having failed and read on an area over and over again, when you get comfortable you kind of feel like an ownership over that. Like you've earned the right to walk these lands uh-huh. and, and to, and that, you know, like every nook and cranny, if you really take your time and explore and you are rewarded for exploration, which is one of the best things about the game for as much as it is a punishing combat experience. When you succeed, you are usually always rewarded. So you always feel like you want to pick apart every single area, even though, you know, dangerous around every corner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I I think uh, it's unfortunate that the difficulty level is such a, like, I don't know, a lot of the buzz about the entire series is about the difficulty. I think it's readily apparent when you start playing them that they're not the same as Skyrim or any other, you know, newer RPG where mm-hmm. where uh, leveling up can help you in these games and it can definitely give you a leg up or a little bit of a crutch, but it's not going to do everything for you like you can you'd have to over level like crazy for that to be the thing that gets you through an area like you really have to develop skill but that being said like i think too much in general is made of how difficult they are and not that they aren't hard games uh like i'm not belittling that because i think there are people out there who do that that are just like they're easy man (laughs) you're bad (laughs) that's not what i mean but unfortunately like i think that's it's the first thing that you think of when you think of them and it's the way like when you want to if you want somebody to try it, you kind of have to give them the warning. But it's yeah. not what I actually enjoy about it. It's like one of the things that drew me to it was that, that oh, cool, people are making games that don't insult your intelligence was really like why I was into it. And then, uh, or don't insult my ability to figure out what buttons do and things like tutorials that you're forced through uh, in games mm-hmm. has become totally ubiquitous. It's in everything now. And every shooter... Yeah needs to tell you that you use the right analog stick to look, and it's just ridiculous at this point that you wouldn't know that language. Um, So those kinds of things are what I 
responded to immediately, but the world design and the combat and how it feels, the differences in weapons and how it almost feels like you're playing a different Street Fighter character when you choose a different loadout, like mm-hmm. the the variety that's in them and how many times you can play through the same content and keep enjoying it in different ways. Uh, and then as you play them a bunch and discover more, like I really like all the lore in all of them and they just, yeah. it's a total package. It's the gameplay, it's the art design, it's everything. Whereas I am of course drawn to the difficulty, but that's not at all like the thing about them. Right. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Roger, if you're going to speak. Oh yeah. I was just going to say also, I think that one thing that's a popular trend now in games too, is just to be this interactive novel. Um, where a lot of games that I played uh, when I was a kid that, you know, that this, like we were keep saying, harkens back to, didn't really have stories. Um, or if yeah. they did, they were really bad. Um, and so this game, I think, try, uh, finds an interesting way to, like, give me really interesting story without ever giving me a story. You know? Yeah. Like, most of it is really obtuse a lot of it you learn the lore from like reading like weapon descriptions or mm-hmm. or just making kind of connections to this or that character that you meet just in, throughout the game but without ever like spelling anything out for you which i i like it gives you the feeling that um you're walking you're actually walking through a museum because in the manner in which you pull up items and read the descriptions they feel like plaques at a museum that are in front of like whatever like whatever you're viewing like weaponry and stuff um so i always got the the sense that you were some sort of like violent archaeologist just running around this dead world that's, which is kind of yeah, cool that's exactly right like i do feel like you're sort of an archaeologist the the storyline yeah. The storyline really is not something you're in. Like, it feels like the story is about, in, like, Dark Souls and stuff, it's about these gods and how the world was made and destroyed and everything. And then you just kind of show up afterwards, and you keep finding out about people. And so you do run into NPCs and have interactions, but, like, the story to speak of is just the lore. And what's kind of cool about that is in terms of game design, that's another thing that does feel kind of classic because you have all these old games that really didn't have stories or if they did, they were garbage. Like there's a plumber with a mustache who's running around and there's pipes and he jumps on mushroom people and turtles and then he saves the princess. And like you had to get a cartoon or like make up reasons why that made sense as a kid because it just doesn't. Uh, it, it was just graphical stuff. It was like, well, let's give him pants and a mustache so we can see where his nose are noses and legs are and so like the designs were all created by the game needing to be that way versus yeah. uh you know you play something i'm going to throw out mass effect again just because it's a real story heavy western game but uh those games like the story is everything and the gameplay was very secondary it's like they didn't even iron out the gameplay until the second one um right. versus the souls games you are sort of an archaeologist. You're just sort of thrown in. There are cool cutscenes or something that like sets the stage in the beginning, and then you just kind of go. And people that aren't interested don't ever have to skip through stuff. Like other than a boss coming out and roaring at you, there are not a lot of cutscenes. There's not a lot of story that you're forced through. It's sort of the yeah. pure opposite of one of my other favorite series, which is Metal Gear Solid, is an interactive movie where you 
you have a movie scene and a gameplay scene and a movie scene and a gameplay scene, and sometimes they work really well together, and sometimes they're incredibly disjointed, where it's just like stealth gameplay and then a big long talking cutscene, and then stealth and choking out a guard and back and forth. The Souls games and Bloodborne are purely gameplay, and then when you start to wonder if you like them enough and are interested in the world design, you start to be like, I wonder what this is all about. I wonder what that was. And you can start to piece together that everything is there for a reason, and everything is trying to communicate something to you. And it's just like a different... At this point, there's been a bunch of them, but especially the first time I played any of them, it was such a different, cool way of of trying to communicate something to a player. I love it. Yeah, um... The story, like the story of the games, is told in a very cryptic way. That it's not even you. You'll find people online that contradict each other, and both of them mm-hmm. seem to have validity to their to the way they've pieced it together. But that's one of the things I like is because you are exploring a dead and forgotten, mostly forgotten world. There, much like in real life, there's just some stories that will never you'll never know. Like you'll never know the truth to certain things, and it's just like by now, word of mouth or whatever's written. Um, and yeah, the, the cutscenes themselves, whatever cutscenes there are, if there are story details, it's the way the way that you are introduced to it is it's super cryptic. I mean, like the stuff in Bloodborne where you actually hear characters talking. I mean, it's just it's just nonsense unless you start to read into what's going on. Uh, I feel like most of the story, like the the natural story of it, is environmental storytelling. So I like walking into an area and just being like, "What the fuck happened here? Mm-hmm. Like, why is this like this?" And then being able to like figure it out as you explore and find items and stuff. Yeah, and actually along those lines, um, I, well, I'll let you respond to that if you'd like to, Roger. I want to talk about something I found out fairly recently about Demon Souls that makes what he just said make a lot of sense. Um, well, what I was going to say is only kind of loosely related, so we can come back to it if you want. Um, okay, so so the first one I played, and I think I'm the only one of the three of us that's actually gone through it, is Demon Souls. That's right, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So, and I played Demon Souls like crazy, and I I came to it a little bit later. Like I think it was out, but I read about it and was maybe not. I think I might have heard about it before it came out, but I bought it, didn't get into it right away, uh, and like put it down for a few months and then started playing it. I played it through a few times before Dark Souls came out, so I was legitimately excited for Dark Souls. I was reading about like the bonfire system and the fact that it was going to be all connected and not individual stages and was like, okay, this sounds like a really cool way for this to go. Um, but Demon Souls, like I felt like it was an NES game for me. Like It just was, wow, cool, this is just like what I used to play. It's people like me who made this, I guess. Uh, and so recently I read this whole really cool thing that made a lot of the systems in that game, which have carried through all the rest of them, make a ton more sense to me. Um, have either of you guys ever heard of Wizardry, like the game series? Yeah. yeah. No. Um, so Wizardry was a, an RPG series. I think they've continued on into the 2000s. I've never played through one, but they are very much one of the first stabs at making a video game out of Dungeons and Dragons, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Wizardry ended up being really influential in Japan to where, like, it's it, much of it is first person, much of it is like a text adventure. Uh, it's like these little windows on a black screen that, like, you pick your party right in the beginning. There's no graphics for it. It's just like, I want a fighter, a thief, a cleric. They may even, like, automatically roll those characters to where you don't get a choice in their stats. But you have, like, five or six guys in the beginning. You 
pick from a list of like, I want to go to the bar. I want to talk to this person. And it's only when you start going into like dungeons, there's like a little bit of a first person dungeon crawl graphic and you can see like the walls and the turns that are coming up. And then when you get into a fight, there's a window that tells the names of all your characters and their stats. And then there's a window that shows a graphic of the enemy. And so like final fantasy and dragon quest took a lot from the wizardry games. Um, and so like a lot of the things that you think about as being part of those series uh, and even like the HP and MP and all that stuff comes from wizardry initially. But apparently what's really neat to me is that they caught on like crazy in Japan and there were very few translated versions of the games. And so the fan translations that were out there were spotty at best. And these communities came up around wizardry to try to solve it's like complex systems that were not well explained and try to figure out how to get places in the game and how to do certain stuff. And the games had a bunch of humor in them, um, like with names of weapons and stuff. There was like a special magic sword called like the Blade of Cuisinart and stuff like that <laughs> that were entirely lost on the Japanese audience. They had no idea and took it all super seriously. So this was like a big deal and they had like little message boards and groups that you could get into that would try to like play through the levels together and figure stuff out. And so the way that Demon Souls came about was in trying to recreate that kind of experience. And so they made the game not thinking it would be for a Western audience so much and wanting to make like a modern wizardry. And so the whole thing with seeing bloodstains and seeing where people died and being able to leave messages for each other is supposed to recreate the specific experience that Japanese people had playing wizardry together. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is fucking incredible to me. Like it makes yeah. it all make so much more sense that it was like, okay, this was the impetus for this. Um, anyway, that's something really cool that I found out recently that I figured I'd mention. <laughs> awesome. That's pretty. Yeah, I never knew that. That's pretty awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that uh, asymmetrical type multiplayer that I think this game pretty much introduced to the Western audience because a lot a lot of games try to do this now. Um, uh, and then after that, we can go into like specifically the games and kind of just start talking about spoilery type stuff. Um, I feel like the multiplayer is essential in this game for you to really get the full package of it, like the full experience, and specifically the threat of like being invaded by other players. Uh, but even like the simpler parts of it, where you uh, are just like walking around and you can see other players phantoms like you can literally see them also playing the game uh and it just happens without any warning or anything uh and then like the messages to get left behind by other players to warn you of traps or deceive you into thinking something's safe when it's not or just trick you into thinking of something's a false wall when it's not um i think all that stuff is uh dickheadish it's yeah it it, it is just the internet like <laughs> The internet is just full of people who can be helpful, but mostly people who just t take great pleasure in deceiving you in, in whatever way they can. Um, and it's one of my favorite parts about those games, and I was wondering just how you guys kind of felt about that stuff as well. Um, I uh, wrongly, early on when I was playing these games, tried to tackle everything by myself because mm -hmm. I got stuck on this hard thing and it became an ego trip. Like I'm not going to ask for any help until, until I can't beat this boss after the 50th try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something dumb like that. Um, 
But then I think when we started playing this game, or no, it was with Bloodborne. We started playing Bloodborne so much together. And then when this game uh, that I'm playing, uh, Dark Souls 3, I should I should ma- mention that, this game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, thing, this thing that I'm doing right now while I'm talking, um, when yeah. this one came out, uh, it, it was pretty much from the beginning that uh, I we did multiplayer. And there, yeah. there are probably bosses in this one that I haven't beat by myself just because it was so much fun. And just the community around this game, even though some of it's kind of dickish, you know, like, the yeah. God, I would never understand the hidden path ahead or whatever in front of just stupid walls like that, that are yeah. hidden paths. Um, but just sort of that, <laughs> that, that global community um, that you can see, like a stranger phantom playing the game at the same time as you but then just also your friends being able to hang out like that um, mm. and it feels even even that even though there's nothing directly uh, like referential to older like couch co-op games about that it definitely feels more kind of couch co-op-y to me than, mm. than a, lot of, a lot of other multiplayer type games out there today yeah, yeah. Um, I, I really like all the multiplayer stuff and I didn't discover it for a while. Like I knew that it existed in Demon's Souls, but Demon's Souls, Demon's Souls is the roughest in terms of the punishment I think they give you. Uh, maybe Dark Souls too. I don't know. But in Demon's Souls, you, to become human, like not a ghost in that one, uh, is to get like half your life back. <laughs> like you, you are fifty percent life if you're running around as a ghost, which is to be uh, offline, basically. Like if you don't want people to invade you and you don't want to play co-op, you're stuck with half your life bar unless you like use one of your two ring slots to give yourself a ring that gives you three quarters of your health. Um, I ended up playing Demon Souls through at least once, maybe two or three times uh, before I ever did any multiplayer i played it through multiple times completely like that never bothered becoming human again or like died on purpose or each time i would get invaded and die i'd just be like fuck that and i wouldn't become human again um yeah (laughs) but i didn't know anybody who played it and just didn't really delve into the system of random people that could help you um until i was much more comfortable with the game and then i decided to start like experimenting with that more um same thing with Dark Souls. I ended up playing through that game multiple times by myself, uh, and I did do almost everything by myself in terms of the bosses and everything. Um, I don't know when I finally started summoning, um, but it wasn't... I guess it was Dark Souls... Or I guess it was Bloodborne first and then Dark Souls 3 that we all found out... Well, that I found out that you guys played these games and right. that we uh, and that we started hooking up and playing. And that was... I think those two are the only ones that allow... We also started hooking up and fucking. Right. Hooking up to make out and then play video games. Um, (laughs) But these are the only two, Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne, that have chat abilities. Because, like, the other ones, even if you had friends that you could play with, the game is set up to really only allow you to meet up with random people unless you jump through a ton of hoops. Uh, And talking Mm -hmm. to your friends during was never really a thing. Maybe it was on the 360, but otherwise, I don't know. but so I did all of them solo and sort of had that experience of what it was like to be lost as shit unless I wanted to look at a wiki and figure stuff out, which I think is part of that wizardry thing of like, yeah. 
yeah, like, here you go. Here's where the information is. Like, I think these games were made with the knowledge and the expectation that the internet exists. And so you get your messages inside the game, and then you also, there's a bunch of outside sources where people are compiling stuff, and that's very similar to, you know, the whole inspiration for it. But I had that experience for a bunch of these games, and then when I started playing Bloodborne, you guys and I started playing together. And so, and Dark Souls 3, I don't think I played through it completely alone once before we played together. Uh, and so my experience has changed for these games. And now the multiplayer is a huge part of them. If they announced a new Souls game or a new Bloodborne tomorrow, I would absolutely plan on playing through most of it co-op. Um, and not because I didn't enjoy them solo. I totally did. But I've got a totally different kind of enjoyment now uh, through doing the multiplayer. It's fun. And I think it's annoying when I get invaded, but yeah. <laughs> only because I don't like invading people, so I don't get the mentality of it. But it's a cool part of the game, at least in theory. <laughs> like I hate it when it happens, but when it happens, it's sort of like, okay, this is neat. It's kind of like uh, just an extension of how there are a couple of bosses across the series that basically are other players coming in and fighting you. Um, yeah, And knowing that at any point you could be super confident in the area you're in and all of a sudden everything could go to shit because some random guy can come in and just ruin your day. Like it keeps the tension there when it might go away uh, after you've played through each level like eight times, um, which I think is a cool, a really cool dynamic. Yeah. And the whole getting invaded thing sounds like just awful. Like, why would you do that? But there's actually fa- factions in each of the games that are centered around doing that exact thing, and they give you like unique equipment and stuff for having invaded and and being victorious x amount of times or whatever. So there is like a a, a real reason to do it outside of just being a dick. Like, yeah, um, like for people who want to like collect everything and do everything in the game. Uh, and then there is just there for people who just really like doing that. Like they, yeah. there is a whole community of just people who play that game to just do the PVP and they make like specific builds for that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The meta game revolves around having sort of an artificial level limit because the way the leveling in this works, it gets harder and harder to level. Like you need more and more experience, which are the souls. Um, yeah. But you can level to where every single one of your stats is 99. I think it's somewhere, depending on the game, it's somewhere in the 700s that you can get up to. Um, mm. But the meta game for most of these stops at like 120 or 150. And right. that's yeah. where if you want to find the most active multiplayer, whether it's co-op or being able to invade people, you sort of stop yourself around there. And it's neat because the game doesn't force that on you in the least, but people just decided starting with Demon Souls that it's more fun if you do that because you're forced down a specific path. You're either like a magic person or a strength person or dexterity or whatever. You just can't be great at everything. Um, and so yeah. it's not a bunch of samey people running around fighting each other. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's, we tend to either just get bored and start a new character or, you know, after we've gone through the game two or three times of one character, we're still, we're at like around level 200, like, you don't get close to 700. Um, right. So yeah. we tend to be, I think, the three of us in that range of where most people are still playing. And so we still, even after playing a ton of times, we're getting invaded all the damn time. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the uh, 
the last thing about the community is it also a part of the difficulty of the game stems from how obtuse a lot of it is. And that's where like the community comes in because it'll be something as simple like the game explains to you what the controls are and then that is it and there'll be like entire puzzles in the game where it just it there is no direction as to what to do about a certain enemy or how to get through a certain area and and like it does it it reminds me of when people used to by word of mouth tell each other where the sword was in their first zelda game because uh-huh. because you can miss it like you can start adventuring without it and then someone will be like yeah you have to go in that cave that you start at uh, they, they, it's sort of thing where you went to school and would talk to other people about it, and yeah. you compare notes and stuff. And Which now that now that we have this, that. like I, I know that it's true. I know that it's true that there are people who miss the sword, but it's such a part of like my five year old knowledge that to me, I'm yeah. just like, how could anybody miss the sword? You idiot! <laughs> yeah. But it is. It's the same thing. Like after I've played this a million times, if I was a kid when I started playing the Dark Souls games and got good at them if an adult came to me and was like, yeah, I never could really play those. I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, I played <laughs> yeah. them as a child. It's easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, now that we have this, uh, this online, the, the internet, basically this bigger consciousness to reference when mm-hmm. things are bothering us or when things are too hard. Um, it's literally just an answer away, like a click away to someone's blog or game facts or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's why I think going online to look at stuff about this game never feels like cheating to me. Because no, they've just, they've just found some way to manufacture that community that doesn't exist for most games anymore. Because it doesn't need yeah, it to. Feels like, right. It feels like an intentional part of the game. It right. does. And like, what's cool to me is that if you somehow never could get online playing these games so you couldn't get co-op partners or you don't have an internet access, whatever. If for some reason you decide to be like a real Luddite about playing them, I think they're entirely beatable by yeah. yourself, but it's mostly like special secrets or like NPCs or like hidden bosses and areas that may be something that you wouldn't find your first or even third time that finding an internet community that tells you something is like, whoa, cool. It enriches everything, but it's not like to beat the final boss or to get right. past like basic stuff in the games that you would need that it's more because it's so dense and it's got so much crazy shit in it like talking to other people or reading what people have written about it ends up being really helpful but it's not i think it's by no means necessary it's just but what is necessary is putting some time in like you really do have to learn how to play these games it's not like picking up a first person shooter for the 12th time and understanding how the analog sticks or a mouse and keyboard work um it's it's its own thing, but uh, yeah. All right. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to touch on before we just start talking about the game very specifically? Um, probably. I'll probably have a lot of tangents to jump into. Yeah, we should <laughs> sure, yeah. no, no, go back into generalities. We don't want to jump sure. forward into specificities. Yeah. So obviously. We all love we love all these games, and I I would recommend it to the, almost anyone. Like I, I want everyone to play them because they're so good. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk specifics now. Like so, spoilers if in case you give a shit about that type of stuff. Um, but with this sort of knowledge base that we've discussed, you know, go out and explore and find one of the games that you like yourself. Um. So yeah, uh, I. I don't know if you guys want to talk about them 
in the order they came out, or if you just want to talk about Demon Souls, Elf, Dark Souls, and Bloodborne. Um, um, well, I say it makes the most sense to talk about it in the order they came out because um, they flow <laughs> off of each other, and I think they evolve as they go. Um, mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. And you guys didn't play much Demon Souls, so I know you'll have some stuff to say on it. But I can just talk yeah. real quick, and then we can be done with Demon Souls <laughs> and move on. Because I know you guys don't give a shit about it anywhere near as much as I do. <laughs> so we, I can yeah, Demon I Souls can move massive. quickly. I'll jump all yeah. over once he comes yep. out. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's cool. a great game. It is really clunky, like especially in terms of how well and how smoothly uh, Dark Souls 3 and um, and Bloodborne play. I think that all makes even more sense, knowing the wizardry connection, uh, right. that it's clunky. Because it came out in 2009. I mean, it came out a year after MGS4. Like It didn't come out in a time where there were lots of clunky games like that, and it just fit right in. It right. felt like that then. It's not like it's aged so poorly. It just feels like it's aged badly because, to some people, I think, because these new games have, have so much polish to them. Right. Um, but anyway, Demon Souls, I think it hit in 2009, and one of the things that it does that Bloodborne kind of does too, and none of the others, is that you sort of have you have your hub area that you start in, and then there's these stones that you can walk up to to pick your level. And you have to go through, like in most of these games, you have to go through some amount of like either a tutorial level or the first level before you're allowed to like level up or find other players to play with. You sort of have to prove yourself in this one little kernel, and then you can start playing for real. Uh, and Demon Souls did that. Um, but then from then on, you basically get to choose your level from five different worlds and there's like three main levels in each of those worlds plus a final boss uh, of each one and you can teleport back and forth and stuff but it's not a big cohesive world it's very separated Um, but yeah anything else I might say about it pretty much applies to the other ones so we can kind of move on I think yeah just real quick demon souls was my intro to this series Mm -hmm. and I, I, I just heard that it was really good and um, I heard all the things about how difficult it was and how much it reminded the reviewer of older games. And it seemed like the sort of thing I'd be into. And I got it. And of course, it was super hard and I couldn't get past like the first level. And so I was like, I'm going to put this down and come back to it at another time. Uh, and then I did and still wasn't able to make any progress. Um, and then I just put it down. I put it down for good. But I, I always had the sense that like, I I do like this. It's just there's something about it that's not clicking with me. And there, and every, everyone talks about the moment that the games click for you. Like yeah. there, there is no, there is no science to it. There's no way to like figure it out. It's just, it clicks for everyone differently at different times in different ways. Yeah. Um, but you but, do have to put some time in. Like it's, I think it would be really rare. I can't imagine talking to somebody who was just like, yep, I put it in. It was my favorite game right away. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't yeah, sound exactly. It doesn't sound likely. <laughs> Because it and because it was so unlike everything, yeah, where games were at that time as well. Like, it's the it's the anti Devil May Cry, but I, at the same point, like where we are now with all these games, I don't think they could ever make another Devil May, Devil May Cry because I don't think people are interested in playing that type of action game anymore. Right, which just balls out action. I think what Demon Souls started was something that was slower um, and felt like a worse game, but as you play it more. 
you start to realize that it's just more intentional. Like what you're doing with having to manage a stamina gauge and everything is like managing blocking and dodging and the strikes that you're using, the particular weapons that you're using, um, everything become what became much more of a life or death uh, decision as far as like, do I block or dodge or do I try to parry or, you know, and it's, it is stressful. Like it's not the sort of game I play to, or it wasn't the sort of game I played to relax. I (laughs) totally play them and relax now. Yeah. uh, It took time to get there. (laughs) Yeah. Demon, Demon Souls was my first, uh, that, that was my intro to this series. Roger, did you play Demon Souls at all? So then I guess m- just moving on to Dark Souls 1 then, because I think that's where we all mm-hmm. really got into the series. It's uh, I think, before we even say anything more detailed, I think it's still my favorite of every one of them. I love most of them, um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, I think, still the one that... It's a mixture of, I think it's perfect design in a lot of respects, and then I'm able to overlook the flaws that it has because of nostalgia. <laughs> so it's a mix of that. Yeah. Whereas the other ones, even if they're more polished, are new enough that I don't have the nostalgia for them yet, so they haven't dethroned it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Dark Souls 1 was another one where I picked it up and I was like, I know I'm going to like this. I'm going to try it. And I I tried it and I failed miserably. And I was like, fuck, I'm just not good at these. And then I think I had a friend that was like, talked about it all the time. He was like, we should play together. And I, I was like, okay. Um, and then he like showed me a lot of the basic stuff about it. And then from there, I just kind of like went off and played it myself. And that's where I like found the love for it is when, when someone was there to like actually explain to me what does and does not make sense to do. Um, that's where I, it started to get me, which makes sense. That all sounds like wizardry again. Like that's like, yeah. it seems like that's in the design somewhere. Like that yeah. you could be yeah. the kind of person who can pick it up and figure it out and go, yeah, this is for me. Or it takes one other person to be like, here's what you're not understanding about this. This is, this is what this is about. And maybe that's enough to make it click. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think whatever that clicking moment is in the series or in each game, I think is important. Um, I don't know what it was specifically for me in Demon Souls, but that is where it happened. Um, mm. But I remember, I, I mean, I just died and died and died. I don't know how, like that first level, you're not allowed to pick any other levels until you beat the first one. And I think whenever it was that I decided in earnest to pick it up and be like, I'm going to play this. I'm going to like really get into it. Um, Cause it was months after I'd bought it. Um, I finally beat that first level. And then once things open up and you can choose the first level of each of those worlds and like mess around in them, even if you don't beat them, you can keep trying a different one until one clicks somewhere in there. I think it was that third level, the tower of Latria where mm-hmm. all the crazy uh, squid headed guys are running around and, it, and it's got the bell maidens from bloodborne, like their sound effect and everything is pulled directly from that level of that game. Um, okay. It's the creepiness of that has a specific nostalgia for me and probably a lot of other people from demon souls. And it's the creepiest. I think that's the single creepiest level in any of these games. Um, but I think it was when I finally felt like I was understanding how to move forward in that level that I just kind of was like, okay, I think I get this. And, Mm -hmm. and then by the time I had played through it a few times and, uh, dark souls was coming out, I just couldn't wait for the same kind of game, but with like a singular world, 
and no safe places. Like that's what I had heard about it. And I was just like, that sounds amazing to me. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and when it came out, it just blew my mind. I was, I've had so much fun with dark souls. Roger, I have a very specific memory of the first dark souls when I was getting into it. Uh, and I lived with you at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into it super hard cause I also had just gone through a terrible breakup. Oh, woe is me. Um, and I was just not doing well. It's just so you know, that sounded like when you went, oh, whoa, it was me, and it was like really uh, self-deprecating. It sounded like you should have had like hit something on the soundboard right after that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wish I had a soundboard. Maybe I'll get an app soon or something. Uh, but yeah, my my escape from thinking about any of that stuff was games, and Dark Souls was probably not the best game to get into at the time, because it's a game you can easily get sucked into and just lose yourself into uh and so i remember there was one day where i was playing it and i i think i literally i had nothing to do that day so i literally woke up and started playing it and took breaks to like get food and drink and you know get a drink or whatever Mm -hmm. um but i played it all day and you checked in on me like three times and it it was like 11 o'clock at night and you you just came in and said damn would you realize i was still playing it and then just walked out yeah um and i was like you like uh on the bridge with that dragon and you explained uh like at the very beginning of the game you know Hmm. and you explained what the game was and i thought it sounded terrible (laughs) right Right. that's the thing on paper i really do think it's hard to argue like, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's terrible, and it kills you a lot. It's real hard, but it's really great though. Like, <laughs> yeah. So having that be your your like window into it, what was it that made you finally pick it up and start to play? Because I think Dark Souls was your first one, right? The you know, first game. I was yeah, it, it was. I was just talking to um, Brooks about this yesterday about how I don't know if you guys are like this, but every once in a while I'll be doing something. Um, just anything and it'll just hit me and I'll think I think I like black tea now (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) like just just anything and and uh and it happens to me all the time it's like there's this this shift and I was gonna say sea change but that's way too way too big a thing there's just this little shift though I'm like man do I like reggae music now? <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, the I don't. Is no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no. So, so I was, I was thinking about like it was that sort of thing. I knew I was, I was jonesing for something, but I wasn't quite sure what. And it was the free game um, on Xbox Live Games with Gold. Oh um, yeah. And it was so it was just kind of serendipitous, and I picked it up, and it took me like five hours to get out of the Undead Berg. Um, but yeah, just getting out of that, as soon as I got out of that, I knew that I loved that game because there's no way I would have invested that much time if I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I I feel like I didn't mention it earlier when I probably should have in the generalities, like when we talked about multiplayer, we talked about the storyline, all that stuff. The huge, huge thing, the thing that actually makes it good, that makes it worth worth all of the headaches of dying over and over again or like needing a learning curve or needing that moment to where you find out you like the game. Whereas like Mario isn't like that. You pick it up and people (laughs) like it or they, for whatever reason, don't. But you pick it up and you're like, yeah, this is fun. And that's not how the Souls games are. Uh, (laughs) But what they have that almost no other game has is this sense of 
discovery and I, fulfillment sounds huge the same way that a sea change does, <laughs> but it's there. It's like a, yeah. it's a mini version of fulfillment or at least accomplishment. Like I drew a really cool picture today or like I wrote a poem. Like it's that same sense of like, I fucking accomplished something that was difficult and that I might not have been able to do, but I fucking did it. And you get that sense over and over and over again. And maybe it's that first one that is the moment for a lot of people. That's like when they decide they like it, but that's the thing I think that keeps me coming back. Um, and I do feel like I keep learning stuff, even in even in levels that I've done a million times. When I play a new way, or it's like I've never used spears before, they seem hard to use because they don't swing wide. I'll try that, and then when I start beating bosses using a new weapon like that, it again feels like I've learned something new and gotten better, and it just never ends like that yeah. particular feeling. Yeah. Um... The, for a game that uh, touts itself as just kicking you down and then stomping on your balls and smushing your face in while you're down and, and throwing some mud and dirt in there too, uh, it's, it is oddly encouraging to play when you're failing over and over again, but you get like that one step closer and then maybe you find like an item when you get past an enemy that was uh, giving you trouble or, or something it, it, it oddly feels like the developers are still like encouraging you to keep playing it, even uh-huh. though it, it feels like dark and depraved and masochistic to play. Right. Um, it really isn't. It's, it's, it, it is more about like, um, I don't know if you ever, if you guys ever feel this way, but it feels more like kind of a self-help thing of like stuff in real life is hard. Like it is difficult and it seems impossible, but if you keep trying, maybe you learn a thing, and then you learn two things, and then you learn three things, and then this thing that you used to do that bothered you is like nothing now. Right. Um, you move past it. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the way, the sense that I get playing these games. <laughs> um, and the first Dark Souls in particular, um, I think where I, the first major part where I got stuck was... Um, it was one of the first bosses. It wasn't like the Asylum Demon. I got past him pretty easily. But uh, what was the first, the next, that dragon on the bridge, I thought you actually had to fight him. So I right. just kept dying him over and over again. No, and then, um, it's that area, though. Um, is it the gargoyles on the top of the roof? Or do you fight somebody before yeah, that? Yeah, fight, yeah, the gargoyles. before that, though. You fight the, the Taurus, whatever. Taurus Demon, yeah. You have to yeah. fight the Taurus yeah. Demon and... Depending, I guess, if you go down, you have to fight the Capra Demon, too. And those are both, like, big mm. walls for players, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think the first wall for me was the Gargoyles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And that whole area. And that whole area is where I learned, because the Gargoyles kept killing me, I was like, I'm just going to fuck around here and explore and see what I can do. That's where I learned how to, like, parry and stuff with yep. some of the easier enemies that are just floating around there. Yeah. The, um, uh, and then... the Those knights, I forget. The Balder Knights. I learned how to yeah. parry on those guys. Yeah, so it always seems like there's that first area that you get stuck in, and then from then on, you just have like the problem-solving skills to breeze through the rest of the game. Right. Um, first area of Dark Souls One that I, that really hit me of like this game is fucking awesome was I think Sen's Fortress because it played. It felt like the Indiana Jones moment of that game where it was just a place where the most dangerous things were the traps. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were so many fucking traps. Um, and it was like, it, there were annoying parts about it too, like having to fight on really uh, like balance beams almost while 
guys are shooting lightning at you and a guy's charging you with a sword, but there's also axes swinging that you have to dodge, like, as you're trying to balance beam over a pit that has a giant demon at the at the bottom of it. Sometimes it seems over definitely overwhelming. Yeah. Um but that is like one of the coolest parts of that game. Agreed. I love sense. <laughs> yeah. And at this point it's I run in and just do it. Like I know it's, it so well. It's but it so used to be yeah, it really yeah. is. But it takes time. You like now I know it. Like I know I know Sen's Fortress better than I know my own neighborhood. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's one of the things like you just sort of in all these games, the, the lack of a map, you're right, is huge. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um that was like one of the big additions to Super Metroid and it was in Castlevania Symphony of the Night, and I feel like along with moving into three D one of the big things this thing, this series did was go, uh, nope, we're going to get rid of that because you need to know this. And if you have a map, you might not. Right. Yeah. Um, another one of my favorite areas in the game was uh, after the Archduke uh, archives, mm-hmm. there was the area with the invisible walkways. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Another Indiana cool. Jones thing. Yeah, it, it took me fucking insane. forever to figure out. And that's one of those things that is so obtuse that if I was playing the game by myself and hit that, uh, that's where I would have stopped playing it. But, you know, the fact that I had a, a resources, like, people to um, re- to ask, like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. And then you, then you learn that those, those, like, prism stones that seem useless, you use yeah. them to, like, mark where the floor is. And people, um, if you're playing online, you've got those messages from people where they've left messages out in the middle of the walkways just floating yeah. there, and you're like, well, if that's if there's a message there, I can walk to it. And, uh, yeah. and just, you, it's, a, it's just like Indiana Jones, it's a leap of faith, and you just sort of go, okay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to be clear, they're totally fucking invisible. There, yeah. There's no way to discern it with the naked eye no, at than, all, unless there are messages or you leave prism stones. Yeah, the, the prism stones yeah. dropping, and there's, well, there's basically like rain of prism stones coming down in that area, and if you mm-hmm. pay close attention, you can see them hitting or falling all the way past you. And they're, yeah. it's the exact same thing that the prison stones, prison stones do. Um, but it's like out there in the environment. Um, yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> they did some fucked up stuff to you. But yeah, they, there's always a tool in the game to get you past it. Um, mm. I do, you know, and I do think the games get, there are, there are defenders of these games that are over the top, just like detractors, where yeah. these games do have flaws and glitches happen. But like they are designed to be fair and i think that's what is largely fun about them like all of the stuff that we're talking about that's difficult would be awful if it was just difficult every time but the fact is you can get good at it and it no longer becomes difficult you can still fuck up or you can still feel like the game fucked up (laughs) and and you can die from something like that but it's so rare it's so well balanced in general that it doesn't happen a lot um but it's not like it's not like it's absolutely perfect and that shit never happens. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like after you play it for a while and I, I always call it matrix vision where you can kind of feel like yeah. you see the code yeah. of the world just like floating. Uh that's then that's when you start to like notice the real nitpicky stuff, but sure. on, on, for the most part, most of the time when you die, you know that it's your fault and not right. like the game fucking up. Um, so that's another thing that's pretty encouraging too, is like, uh, 
you you almost immediately know what you did wrong, right? And you just know that you need to fix it, right? So, assuming everything's working the way it's supposed to, which is ninety nine percent of the time, you yeah should walk away going, "Damn it, why did I do that?" As opposed to, mm-hmm. "Damn it, the game screwed me over." And that's I think that's another difference with m- most games now. Like I love the Mass Effect games, I love Assassin's Creed, I love all the big open world things. Bethesda's games are bug intensive. You have to save constantly and reload when the game screws up. Like polish in games in my lifetime has been with with notable exceptions like Team Eco or something like that. It's Nintendo games. They just don't put out games that have a huge bug, except for maybe a few in the last few years. Um, yeah, but they're like done, one and done, and you can trust that there's nothing in the game design that's going to go. Oh, I got this item ahead of this item in Zelda. Oh well, my save file's screwed. Like that kind of shit doesn't happen uh, in those games and Hideo Kojima's, and that's it. And until the Souls games for me, everybody else, mm-hmm. it's like you can kind of just expect that some shit will happen that right. will screw you over at some point. Uh, but in the Souls games, I don't. I couldn't tell you when that's happened to me. I know it has, but it's enough. It's so few times that. Not only could I count them on my fingers, but I don't remember them. Yeah. Um, another special moment, and probably one of my favorite areas in the game, if not my favorite, is the first time when you get to Anne Orlando. Oh, yeah. Um, and that is the first place that feels like it is... It When you first get there, it feels like it has not been touched by any devastation, but as you continue to explore it, you see that it's just as fucked up as the rest of the world. But yeah. it's the first place that looks like architecturally amazing it's yeah it's the seat of the gods yeah it's like everything uh, that's been building up exactly yeah when they have you start to navigate that architecture um in an unexpected way that's when i was like holy shit this game this game really is something special right right Um, yeah that first area and the yeah yeah i don't know how specific you want to get there but <laughs> yeah and go i mean go as specific as you want because we're, we're deep in the spoilers gotcha now. okay yeah yeah you yeah. right when you get to an orlando you go down that elevator after you've come in and fought some giants and stuff and then you mm-hmm. you come out and can see the next areas you're supposed to get to and for a few minutes are sort of like how the hell do i get over there there's this big gap and there's no way to cross it and then you realize <laughs> that off to the side back at the beginning of the bridge you're on there's a broken window across the way and you basically just have to fall down onto the buttress of this building. And it looks totally wonky and accidental. It almost feels like you're glitching the game or that you're like going out of bounds in a place you're not supposed to. And you walk up this thing, but there is like the designers put certain things in places. There's a message on it so that you can tell someone has been there and it's not Mm -hmm. placed by a player. It was placed by the developers so that it would be there for everybody. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it's, you know, it's their little clue. And if you're paying attention to the world that you're in, there's your clue. And this is where you're supposed to go. And then you just go get in a broken window and come through the rafters and get to Anne Orlando proper. It's fucking great. It's, it's wonderful design. Yeah. Yeah. It's the first place I had uh, someone, someone in. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm not sure it's I ever first... beat them by myself. Oh, you're talking about Ornstein and Samo. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, that's a real hard boss fight. They're rough, and I don't remember. I know you can summon Solaire for that fight alongside mm-hmm. other people. I do not remember my first time fighting them. I don't remember if I 
if I had to summon somebody or if I did it on my own. I know at that point I definitely didn't have friends who played, so it wouldn't have been anybody real. But right. uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was playing it on the PS3. Um, our internet. I lived in the mountains of Colorado, so the internet was not great for me. Um, so I don't know. I might have soloed that. I'd love to say that I did, but I can't actually say that. <laughs> um, the first time I played that game, my very first playthrough, when you get to Anorlando, there's the guy that makes the boss weapons, the, that giant. Yep. Um, and before I got, ever got him to make a boss weapon, I, I accidentally hit him. And immediately he was just enraged and he would not do so. He would always try to kill me. Oh, so no. I just, my whole first playthrough, I got, I did not have access to that guy. Oh, and it awful. sucked because I wanted, I, I wanted some boss weapons. Um, oh, that's awful. But yeah. And that's another thing about the game is any NPC you come across, you can just kill. And yeah. Um, I think in the in the later ones they started making NPCs that you couldn't kill, but in that first in, in the first Dark Souls, I feel like you could kill anyone that you came across. Could, and in Demon Souls, you can too. And there's a character pretty much in every game. It started with Demon Souls. There's some NPC there that will start murdering NPCs or do something fucked up that'll betray you. Mm. Like there's Patches who always betrays you, but there's another one in every game that's unique to the game. And in Demon Souls, there's a guy who shows up and you think he's all right. And then you don't really know what's going on, but you come back after like beating a boss, you come back to the main hub area and you find a couple of bodies that weren't there before. And so the very first time they're just bodies that appear, they're not anybody real, but if you don't take care of it uh, and you keep beating bosses, every time you come back, a new NPC is dead and he'll kill like your blacksmith and everybody that's important. (laughs) it's really fucked up Uh, and I don't feel like they ever did anything that bad again but there's always a version of that in every game yeah I think they've iterated enough to to figure out like this was neat but I think it's mostly annoying to the players right like like, they want the feeling to come out they want that betrayal but not at the point where people would be like my game is ruined I give up yeah yeah Uh, the the moment uh, for me in, in Dark Souls like that was when um, outside of just having uh, killed or enraging that giant um, who was it that got killed talking who about was the NPC in, the story in, in Dark Souls yeah who was the NPC in Dark Souls that would just start killing it's Latrec, uh, kills. Uh, Latrec. he kills the firekeeper under Firelink Shrine under the main mm-hmm. bonfire and what's so, and that's the only one that he kills, but what's so fucked up about that is that Dark Souls is so interconnected in a way that like none of the other ones are. All of them, Demon Souls through Bloodborne, except for Dark Souls 1, has a hub that you go back to that's safe. And Dark Souls has Firelink Shrine, and you can get like NPCs to congregate there, but there are enemies in multiple directions, just like a short skip away like you're not actually in an area where there's no enemies to attack you like you are in the other games but it still feels like home like every time you come to it it's like ah my safe spot this will be like i'm i'm cool here i finally made it back um but you get there at one point and the fire just isn't there anymore and it's not safe and you can't heal yourself and it's because Mm -hmm. he killed the firekeeper uh and you have to find that out and then you have to like go through the little mini quest line to bring her back um but it is, it's like a really emotional 
reaction that you have when it just sort of like adds to the tension and adds to your fear of the game. Um, yeah. I guess that's one of the main, I, along with the sense of discovery and everything, which is one of those things. Games as an art form, any art form is meant to evoke emotions and games can give you different kinds of stuff with a story. Like they can either make you cry or laugh or anything like any movie, but the souls games are so good at pushing your buttons with emotions that like I'm not used to from games, whether it's the overall tension, that sense of discovery and then sense of accomplishment, uh, I don't think I'd ever cry or like laugh like crazy, <laughs> but it's these other emotions that other games I don't feel like tackle in the same way. Um, right. That it's kind of unique to the series, uh, but that's one of them. That that sense of betrayal or like oh shit, something got really fucked up doesn't exist in other games for me. Right, and I I think that's a really cool artistic thing, or maybe like uh, the essence of of art because I've always thought that that what separated art, especially art that has an entertainment, like an entertaining bent to it, like, you know, movies or video games can be strictly commercial, you know, mm-hmm. um, even music, I guess any sort of mainstream art. But what, what separates art from entertainment is that entertainment is transactional. Um, right. So if you go to watch some movie adaptation of some romantic novel or something you're saying here's ten dollars i want to cry in an hour and a half right um <laughs> or uh, you have this much art. time yeah exactly you've got this much time to make this worth it for me where some a lot of art will kind of sidestep that or kind of take you from take you by surprise mm-hmm. um, and I think yeah these games do that for sure and it's not it's not always like a really visceral emotion it's just it just feels satisfying yeah yeah, that's the good side of it. And then there are that frustration that you get from losing over and over versus when you finally beat something and feel like I fucking did it. Like it's just it's this cool roller coaster of those specific extremes. Um, and nothing else really does that for me in the same way. Like I think I probably got bits of that from the original Metroid or from Ninja Gaiden. Um, but it's been since I was a kid, since I was playing Super Nintendo stuff that I had those kinds of uh, same emotions. Like, I've had lots of good narrative experiences in games. Metal Gear, a lot of people make fun of Metal Gear because it's silly, but I've had a lot of really good emotional uh, times, like fun times with Metal Gear, where a a character from a previous game would come in, and I'd just be like, fuck yeah, like get really excited about it. Or like certain plot developments, like in MGS3, everything with the boss and the ending of that are just stellar. But it's like watching a movie. It's yeah. emotional manipulation in the way that we've crafted the scene, we put the music here, we did everything the way a movie does. Uh, only you have spent more hours than you normally would in a movie and interacted with these characters in a different way. And so they use the, a game to do what a movie would do. Whereas with these games, because it's all gameplay, it's all you sort of getting those emotions for yourself by getting them out of the game. And that's unique to me. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I find unique about all these games, but, you know, I first experienced it with Dark Souls 1, uh, was, uh, there is no sense of who is the bad guy and who is good guy in this game. Mm-hmm. Like, you definitely feel like you're the good guy because you are the one taking action throughout the world and the world is trying to kill you, but most of what you do is either out of necessity or survival. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And when you're trying to piece together whatever story there is, however cryptically it's told, it's annoying because there's characters that will tell you a story and then other characters that will contradict that exact story. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to suss out what who's good and who's bad. And at a certain point, I think that it, they're just, it, it just is not a matter of good or evil in this world. It's, it's just a matter of, especially in the first one, like Lord Gwyn is the final boss that you fight. Right. Uh, but I'm not so sure that Lord Gwyn is a bad dude. Like he just wanted to extend the age of fire for cause just because like it's hard to put things to an end. Uh, and, but it is a natural thing that happens. So he's trying to artificially extend the age of fire. Um, yeah, but it, it, there's never a story where it's like Lord Gwyn was a dick, you know, it's just, that was just why this world was falling apart. No, it yeah. had good intentions, but I think there are, there's probably like the factions, the multiplayer factions add a little bit of lore and give you mm-hmm. sort of a sense of like, there were these people or still are these people running around who feel this way. And there are, I think there's probably, a, I'm drawing a blank now, but I think there's probably a faction in there that is like straight up anti Gwyn or whatever. But even yeah. in the story, like the two serpents that you can talk to, you are, even as the good guy, like, L- Frampt is supposed to be friends with Gwyn, but your entire goal, as stated by them, is to kill him. And the good guy goal, or at least the way it's presented, the good guy goal is to kill him and take his place. You link the fire, and because he's hollowed. Like, it's not like he's bad. He just isn't himself anymore. He's gone. Yeah. Um, he's gone and hollowed and you need to get rid of him to then do the same thing he's doing. And then the other version of the story is kill him and don't bring back the Age of Fire, bring an Age of Darkness. And those are your two choices. And it really, like, that one is painted as evil just because it's the Dark Wraiths faction who are the invaders and everything. Like, it's hard to want to root for them. But then everything you find out in the lore makes it feel like that's humanity's natural state and the Age of Men will come if you do that versus you sort of keep the gods limping along and keep the status quo and is that really good and so it really is it's it's very gray all of it um and even the stuff that seems black and white like these guys dress in skull faces and they invade people to steal their humanity is like that's bad that sounds terrible but then (laughs) i actually really think of the dark lord ending for dark souls one as being the good ending like it seems the most complete like you get the most out of it as a player you get a slightly longer cutscene which those kinds of things to me that's like part of the language of games that says to me this is better it's longer there's yeah. more to it so it's probably the real one whether right, that's true right or not <laughs> exactly um but even just the fact that you are a human you're an undead human and this is supposed to be for humans and undead if you do it this way it's like okay that seems to me like it's probably the right one uh but the game does not present it to you that way at all um, it is very gray. Everything is always really gray. And I think once we get there to Bloodborne, Alfred, I think, is a really good example of an NPC that sort of straddles that line really well. Um, yeah. Because he's presented like Solaire, who is the goodest of guys in these games. Solaire is like the the super best friend of the player uh, in Dark Souls. And you summon him for boss help. He talks about jolly cooperation. He introduces you to the entire concept of how the co-op multiplayer works. Uh, and his whole thing is faith in the gods and faith in Gwyn. And then his reward for everything, if you go through his whole storyline, is that he fucking either goes crazy and turns evil and you have to kill him, or he uh, he doesn't go crazy and he just is depressed as shit 
and yeah. has a sad life, and that's his ending. Like nothing ends well for him, and he's the nicest guy you can come across in any of the games. Yep. Right, and like you said, most of these characters that you find, well, going back to what what he was saying earlier about being an archaeologist, it's like the story is yeah. not about you. And so when you get there, everything that was story related that could have had some sort of moral uh, morality to it, I think, is already gone. Yeah. And so when you find these people, they're no longer themselves anyway. They're just sort of relics. Um, yeah. And, and the story, really, what story there is, was about them anyway. So you're just kind of a an observer. I think your character at best is neutral. Um, right. And then it's and then you're kind of just walking through this museum of what already happened. Um, so I think there's moral ambiguity built into it. I don't think mm-hmm. you're you're ever supposed to feel like there's a bad guy and there's a good guy. Yeah, your agency really doesn't come into play except for killing bosses and yeah. uh, and whatever little mini quest lines you might have with a certain character. Uh, but it really doesn't come into play until the ending, until you choose an ending in any of these games. Yeah. Um, that's sort of the only thing where the player like. If there were then a direct sequel, that would be the player's footnote as a character. It would be like, then this guy came and did this. And otherwise, you're not in the story at all. Right. Yeah, you're like an elaborate euthanizer. Basically. <laughs> you're just going around putting everybody down. If if sorting people or burning them to death could be called euthanasia and not just yeah. murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um yeah, that that was the most striking thing is like I didn't feel like there were any bad guys in the game. There were just people with these uh really heartbreaking stories. Uh and you you are coming across them at their biggest point of desperation. Um and I think that comes across the best in Bloodborne. So let's yeah. uh let's knock Dark Souls 2 out of the way so we can get to the, the yes. Bloodborne. <laughs> <laughs> Dark yeah, Souls 2 talking about it is. This is what we're talking about. It's my least favorite of the whole series. I think yeah, it's yeah. like the biggest player base that seems to love it and keep going back to it are the people who like the multiplayer the most, whether that's yeah. co-op or uh, PvP. And I think it's mostly PvP lovers. It's got a lot more like factions, a lot more focus on the PvP. Uh, so it, it speaks to them pretty well. And the level design doesn't matter so much when you're doing PvP, other than being like a fun map to run around and kill players in, like right. the the really good or bad game design doesn't come into it if that's what you're after, and that's what I don't think is done real well in Dark Souls Two. It, yeah, I, I have negative things to say about it. I have some positive, but my main negative is that it feels to me like fan fiction of Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was tough to suss out like how it connected to the first game, if at all. And I think it does if you dig deep. Uh, and, and I think because I never played the DLC, but I, yeah. from what I've read online, uh, if you play the DLC, it does tie that game and the first game it, uh, pretty tightly together. It ties a lot into it, but it's in the main game at least. It's a lot of references and fan service. It's a lot of. I found this armor, and it's from the first one, and it gives me, it tells me about the Sunlight Knight, who Solaire was. It's those kinds of things where you know it happens in the same world because there's a lot of reference more than being like a plot sequel. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, in the DLC, I, I played through it recently. I played through, I've played the shit out of Dark Souls 2. Don't get me wrong. I just don't like it as much as the other ones. But, you know, I've only put like 200 hours into two, so <laughs> I just don't like it anywhere near as much as the others. Um, 
but I recently went through for the first time Scholar of the First Sin because I played two when it first came out, played some of the DLC, and then put it down. And then it was a few years, and I just played like for the fun of it. I realized it was the only thing I hadn't really gone into in the series. So I picked up uh, Scholar of the First Sin, which is a better game than the vanilla Dark Souls 2 was. Like, Aside from just the DLC chapters, they changed enemy placement and like who you fight where, all that kind of stuff uh, for the better. And it, it just is a better game. Um, yeah. And I think some of that was Miyazaki coming back and having some influence. And I think he had something to do with the DLC too, which are some of the best levels in the game. Um, but yeah, it down to the minutia of it, like the textures are kind of muddy. Like things don't look quite as good. The character models in all of the Souls games have always been a little questionable, but Dark Souls 2 to me has the most questionable and weird looking characters. Um, mm-hmm. It just, it never quite jived with me. I never quite got to love it. I liked things about it, but never loved it. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was, Dark Souls 2 came out in the transitional period between the legacy consoles, as they call them now, and what we play now, the PS4 and Xbox One. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of the systems that they made were intended to be next-gen systems, but they had to make a current-gen version of a game with yeah. those that, that future in mind. Um, but yeah, it, it does It does feel different, and it wasn't immediately apparent to me when I first started playing it why it was so different. Um, I still enjoyed it a lot, and but I felt like my main complaints about that game... And only by comparison of Dark Souls 1, because I still feel like regardless, it, it is a still a great game. Yeah. Um, was that the the world and the characters didn't feel... It just had that... It just needed that extra bit of something to make them feel actually alive and and for the world to feel like it had a little more majesty to it because it did feel like a lesser version of what Dark Souls tried to do. Yeah, yeah. It- it felt less inspired to me. Um, and one thing that is true for sure about it, like it was made basically by the B team. Like it was not mm-hmm. the same people like Miyazaki. He did Miyazaki is the director and creator of demon souls. And he did dark souls and he did dark souls three and he did bloodborne. And the one yeah. he didn't do is dark souls two. Like if you play the DLC for dark souls one, there's a character in it named marvelous Chester and he wears a top hat and like black leather, like a long coat. And he has a crossbow and they put out the DLC for one after they had begun work or at least pre-production on Bloodborne. And that's what they were working on. And so he was there doing that and directing it. And he was just in a producer role while these other guys did Dark Souls 2. And then I think he came back for like the DLC and Scholar of the First Sin, which is why it feels more polished to me. Yeah, um, right. But it makes sense. Like He was over here while Dark Souls 2 was happening, and then by the time Dark Souls 3 was coming out after Bloodborne, he actually was, like, working on it again. So it... they, But I think you can feel it. Like, when you feel Dark Souls 1 and Dark Souls 3, there's something very similar about the animations, the feel, the physics of it, everything. It just isn't there in 2 at all. And it's, like, the odd man out in a bunch of ways. Oh, I can feel it, alright. I can feel it deep in my balls. <laughs> Which balls? Your man balls? <laughs> yeah, my testicles. Oh. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know because I did play the hell out of the game, but the, it, it's like I remember more from one and three 
yeah a lot more from those games than is memorable of two outside of two just being like a fun game yeah. i think one of my favorite parts was uh the the mirror knight that would summon other players in as you were fighting him yeah one of the only memorable bosses from the game <laughs> yeah he is that was a neat one though and that's yeah we've talked about it before but there's a boss in demon souls that sort of started that trend called the uh he's a monk i forget what he is he's the he's a king uh but basically you get to the top of this tower it's the final boss of one of the levels and if you're offline it's just a random like red phantom easy fight but the point what they're trying to do there is they're supposed to summon a player and give him a bunch of extra powers to fight you as up the final boss of that world and they just added a new boss into the dlc of dark souls 3 that does the same thing and the mirror knight might be it might be the most fun version of all that it's really good yeah um one of my favorite things about two was that it felt like in in the same way i feel like we keep uh talking about the metal gear series i think i think one day we'll have to do an episode about that um I'm in, but but like, but like uh, when Metal Gear Two came out, I feel like Dark Souls Two is this meta commentary on just making a sequel to a game, yep. um, and specifically with uh, I feel like the ending is the least satisfying of any of the game's endings, and I think that's intentional for a specific reason. You end up on this thing called the Throne of Want, and throughout the game, they talk about uh, uh, certain characters talk about the curse of life is the curse of want. And kind of this idea that uh, y- the when we want for something and then we get the thing that we want, we immediately feel empty again. And so we keep going through these cycles of like want and never being satisfied and never being fulfilled. Um, and I think that that is the nature of like a game sequel is like we want we want another one of these games. Um, and through also throughout some of the characters continually ask you. Um, do you even know what you're doing this for or why? And like at this point, it's just because now it's now like Dark Souls is just a thing that you want in your life, and uh, or at least I do. <laughs> um, um, I do too. I, I don't know how intentional the meta narrative of uh, the difficulty of making a sequel was in um, Dark Souls Two. I mean, it's certainly there <laughs> mm. um, because it was obviously difficult for them to recreate dark souls one, but I don't think, I mean, that was, that was what metal gear solid two was all about. Was right. Yeah. The plot was was about that. It was, yeah, it was, it was like, you know, it, it was just that. And I think dark souls two has some like thematic issues with why do a lot of things, but then that, Mm. that that's, that's in a lot of the dark souls game. I mean, um, all the crestfallen knights, you know, that's, that's yeah. basically their whole deal. It's like, why doing this shit? Right. Yeah. I'll, you, you te- like as much as you're not a part of the story, your player has decided your, your character has decided to take action. And yeah, the right. crestfallen soldier and crestfallen knights in all these games, their whole deal is here's this other way to go about it. I hate this place and I'm just going to sit here and waste away and not bother yeah. with any of the shit you're doing. And it is, it's an interesting commentary. Yeah, um, I I don't know if it was intentional as far as like this is us talking about making a sequel more, but more what I was trying to speak to was like us as players playing a sequel to a game. Oh yeah, just because what, it is a sequel to a game. A sequel? Yeah, sure. Yeah, 
yeah. yeah. And, and so when you sit on the throne in the end, and it just it, that is the one game that doesn't have multiple endings unless you do the DLC. Right. Um, and you are, and like when I played it, I definitely was like, I was, I was left kind of feeling empty by that ending. Yeah. Um, so flat. It's yeah. Such a nothing ending. Which they all are, but just knowing that you have multiples, like every ending in all the Souls games is about five seconds long. Right. With yeah. with rare exceptions, they're all super short. It's just sort of an idea is passed to you, and then it's like new game plus time. Like it's just like we were talking about before, where everything is sort of through the gameplay. They they keep that through the ending. There just are no cutscenes for you to sit through. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, Dark Souls 2's felt the most. Uh, bare bones I think it felt the most this was the path you were forced on you don't get any choice in this and all you do is sit down and you're done and and then New Game Plus starts yeah um, do you guys want to talk about anything else Dark Souls 2 um, I will because I feel like I've been overly negative on it I think mm-hmm. Dark Souls 2 is a great video game it really yeah. is a good yeah. game it's just that for me right now at 37 years old, these, this series is probably my favorite series and I've been playing games for 30 years. So to be the weakest in this series is still to be really, really good right. and super high up there. It just isn't anywhere near my favorite of these games, but I would play dark souls two for 200 hours. And then I think I put a hundred hours into scholar of the first sin, like a few weeks yeah. ago. Like, it's a great game. I just am comparing it to the stuff that I think is, like, my favorite in the medium. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, then let's move on to Bloodborne, which a uh, funny little anecdote that I read about was uh, hit uh, Miyazaki, before Bloodborne was announced, said that, you know, after Dark Souls, he wanted to make a game that was a little more lighthearted and fun and not so dark and depressing. <laughs> and that, that was like what he was hinting at how his next game would be. And then Bloodborne gets announced and it is uh, <laughs> probably the darkest, I think story wise of any of these. I think um, it's, I played like a little bit of the resident evil games as they came out Four, I think was the mm-hmm. first one that I played through all the way. Um, and I played five and six. So a lot of people would just hate me for, playing those and not one two and three but uh but i was well aware of one two and three i had friends who played them all in front of me i just didn't um i find including silent hill and everything like that i find bloodborne to be the scariest game i've ever played (laughs) like i think the, the atmosphere and the oppressiveness like it's got all the things that these souls games have but they're all sort of a twisted version of lord of the rings whereas that one yeah, we can get into Bloodborne. I'll, I won't be specific yet, but yeah, that well, the atmosphere in that one and the world design and everything is crazy scary in comparison to knights and magic. Right. Yeah. Um, I will say straight up that Bloodborne is my favorite uh, game of the 3D era of video gaming. Bloodborne is my favorite video game. Period. <laughs> This series is my favorite series, and Bloodborne <laughs> is sometimes tied with Dark Souls for my favorite one. So it's definitely right. up there for me. Um, but yeah, if if it's not my favorite, Dark Souls is, and then it's probably number two. 
So yeah, I think um, we're all coming from the same spot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you, Roger, uh, why? What was your favorite game, and why does Bloodborne dethrone it? Uh, maybe Super Mario World. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like with um, all of these games, um, I think Bloodborne is just like an especially like pleasing twist on it to me. But um, with all of these games, have the sort of longevity that I'll continue playing them like I am at this very moment. Um, I haven't <laughs> mentioned it, but I also am playing Dark Souls 3. <laughs> okay. for, uh, for like no reason. Um, just for probably the rest of my life um, because of how just how good they are. I mean, and I, I can't say that about a lot of games after the Super Nintendo. The Super Nintendo when I was a kid, I, I mean, I would play like I beat Star Fox probably like you know fifty times. You know, uh, yeah. I've I played every version of Super Mario World that's ever been released, um, and these games are the same thing. I just I I just think there's something really special about them that's kind of timeless. Um, and Bloodborne just happens to be, like I said, my favorite flavor of that. I think. Yeah, I think that there are things that are that are special about it are different from maybe the rest of the Souls games, but the reason it's my favorite is just because I think I like the setting and just the, the whole vibe of it, the best out of all yeah. these games. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the change of setting because uh, I think people were used to the Lord of the high fantasy type setting of Demon Souls and Dark Souls, and then Bloodborne came in and definitely it wasn't like a whole a, a entire flip, but it was it was a different era of history for sure. Yeah. Um, and so they kind of bring it into turn of the century, uh, you know, where industry started to take over. Uh, Victor- it looks like Victorian, uh, like a like an evil nightmare version of Victorian London. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's, then it's very uh, evocative of Jack the Ripper and like fog everywhere and yeah those kinds of like cobblestones and everybody's wearing top hats and and trench coats like uh, marvelous chester from dark souls <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah and then you sprinkle in you know like werewolves and beasts and stuff but then you also start to sprinkle in some hp lovecraft weird looking creatures and like maybe aliens you don't know really um they're great ones it, the great old ones Right. Exactly, yeah. Uh the game presents itself as one thing and then surprises you with some twists and turns and then goes by the end of it completely off the rails and I just the first time I played it I was like what the well cuz I, I thought I had a sense of it when you first started playing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then you go to like the nightmare I think is when the first time where it starts to get weird. Uh, and then you're like, okay, this is weird, but I think I'm still in it. And then you start to see like alien shit. And I'm like, all right, what the fuck is happening in this? <laughs> yeah. What is going on here? Yep. Um, and then as like, like the other games, as you start to explore the lore and, and read descriptions on, on clothing and weapons and just whatever pieces you can find, um, it starts to become more fleshed out. And I think it's my favorite, it's my favorite lore of the series because I think there's only one game to really dig into so it, it feels tight and concise um yeah. but i also do like the aesthetic and I, I like the subtle changes to the gameplay as well right um, um uh, go ahead i don't know what i was gonna say i had something and it completely left me you go ahead okay yeah um yeah the uh 
the setting and the lore, I think you're right about it feeling concise, and I think having a single game in it helps with that. Um, that's one thing that I will say about Dark Souls 2 and 3. I like 3 more than I like 2, and I do like 2, but I like both of those the least, I think, out of the whole series, simply because each one of them, Demon Souls, as clunky as it is, like as objectively probably better a game as Dark Souls 3 is than Demon Souls at this point, uh, just from polish and how great it plays and everything. Um, I don't like any of the sequels anywhere near as much because I think the each time that they've made a new world and been inspired to do like an entire new mythology, it's so much more interesting to me than when they continue off of that for another game and then another game, which is like the only reason that I would not be super into a Bloodborne 2 because I'd like to see a fourth world uh, as opposed to another retread of a world they've been in before. I'm sure they'd make it a great game, but to dilute anything from Bloodborne 1, which feels very complete to me, would be a bummer. Um, I'd rather just see something brand new. Uh, Yeah. But the... uh, the aesthetic in Bloodborne is unique not only in the series, but I feel like in games. Like, I can't think of another game that I know about that is Victorian England that has... They never say werewolves or anything, but it's this werewolfy beast uh, aesthetic to a lot of the monsters that you fight. And I was very um, interested in Bloodborne, but also sort of like, how are they going to how are they going to keep the interest up and keep the monsters fun to fight if they're all going to be beasts and everything's going to look like this one aesthetic and then you get a certain way into the game and that's when it opens up and you're like, oh. (laughs) And they become (laughs) some of the most like creative and interesting monster designs and fights in the series and the the move away from allowing you to use shields or play defensively or have any kind of heavy armor and have to do everything really aggressively and really fast and the quick step uh, in the gameplay is huge in terms of feeling different. Like, There's no doubt that it's a member of this series, but it's so its own thing. Um, yeah. I think going... if I, I've never talked to anybody who did it, but if you started with Bloodborne and you went back to the Souls series, I think they would feel incredibly slow. I'm used yeah. to jumping back and forth between them all at this point, um, and I like the individual feels that they all have, but Bloodborne is so much faster than the others. Um, um, I was initially worried about the speed because I, mm-hmm. I, what I like about these games is that they are the anti-Devil May Cry I yeah. don't like those type games, man. Um, and so I was really, really worried at first, but then I was really satisfied with how it turned out. It, I think it's forced you to to um, be tactical with your um, combat in the same way that Dark Souls did, just in a different mm-hmm. different light, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so instead of stamina, stamina management with shield blocking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's now it's all, just a base of maneuvers. Or, it's all evasive. And you could do that in the Souls games, too, if you so chose. But now you just aren't given the choice to play right. slowly. You have to fucking... Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the combat, the combat is my favorite and the most satisfying this one because um, I feel like you have the greatest amount of control of your character in Bloodborne. Mm. Uh, in Dark Souls, instead of instead of doing this like dash move that you do in... Um, Bloodborne and Dark Souls, you do like a, a clunky like roll maneuver that works out well if you time it exactly right. But um, 
if you it, it more than often more, more often than not it, it's better to just like block with your shield yeah. uh, rather safer, than try yeah. to yeah to take the chance and dodge if you don't have your timing right um and with bloodborne with the regain system where if you're quick about it and you attack as you've been hit you can regain some life uh with consecutive hits um forcing you to be a little more aggressive and then also with the dashes forcing you to really learn how to maneuver yourself around the battlefield and with the moveset that you have it feels the most cinematic out of all the games but still feels uh razor sharply intentional with all your moves um and i i really really love the trick weapons and all the animation that goes into those yeah Uh, yeah that's huge that's that's a big difference between the games the uh Again, in my mind, the evolution from Metroid all the way up to the end of these, like, Metroid uh, was a side-scrolling platformer that separated itself from Mario and games like it, like a lot of derivative games like it, by being one big cohesive world. It had a lot of repeated tech, like tile sets and the same hallway over and over again, but it was... And so it was very difficult to explore, and there was no mini-map or anything like that in it. Um, but then the evolution of that went to Super Metroid. It was a much better, more interesting world. It had, like, the plant zone, the fire zone, the icy zone, or, I guess, watery zone, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it just sort of, like, sharpened everything. The big addition when Castlevania decided to switch from being stage-based to having one singular castle that was this world, they took a lot from Metroid and from Super Metroid. They had the same kind of mini-map set up as Super Metroid and the same overall feel, but they brought in RPG elements, and now you had stats that you would level up, and then they also had a ton of equipable uh, gear where you had different cloaks that would make you look different, but otherwise there was no such thing as like heavy armor or anything. But the weapons were drastically different. Like You'd have cool overhead attacks or quick swords. You could have a couple of swords that like flew out of your hands and across the screen. You could get like maces and all sorts of different shit. And then you'd have magic spells, and all of that stuff was aside from the powers that you would get that were Metroid-style that would like progress you through the game. And so there were a ton of different ways to play, but there also it was largely about just leveling up and doing enough damage to a boss there wasn't a whole lot of strategy to it and that's one of the things that i think when they when they came to dark souls um where it feels like those games but in 3d the combat is phenomenal in terms of balance but they still have a million weapons for you to choose from and at this point it's like there are straight swords and they all play this way with minor differences and there are great swords and they all play this way with minor differences and so there's these classes of weapons and there's a ton in each and then bloodborne paired it all down instead of having a couple hundred weapons you have eight and then the dlc added eight more and each of them is entirely unique and it feels like playing a fighting game and picking a character you pick ryu or you pick guile and while the basics of the game are the same the variety of moves that you have and how you defeat an opponent are entirely different um and you can if you decide to main a certain weapon or a certain character like in those games uh, you won't play anything like anybody else does. And that rules. I love how they pared all that down for Bloodborne. Yeah. Um, just to be clear, I am now playing Dark Souls 3 as well. <laughs> so I started a new character while 
this podcast, <laughs> and I am about to go beat uh, what's his name, the ice mace guy from the first level. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Vort. Uh, I haven't gotten to him yet. I'm, I'm about to get there. Um, what are some of your favorite parts of Bloodborne? Some of your favorite characters? Some of your favorite levels? Uh, what do you guys love about this game so much? Hmm. Um, I like. Well, th- I mean, the first half of it was great, but once you um, beat Rom, and you can finally see all of the the, uh, the great ones, mm-hmm. and then you start to fight some of them. I really love Ebriatus. Um, yeah. And who else? I love all the like the goofy, the, like the celestial emissary, those looking guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's such a like a goofball design, but it, it's great. It fits. Um, Oh, those, those are really those are dopey looking. Lines. Yeah, Smurf the, the guys. dopey blue looking guys. Yeah. They are, and they are dopey as hell. But the and then when you think about them further, like when you get into the lore, it, they're one of the creepiest things in the game. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. they are. They like strike you immediately as like clownish. Um, and yeah, and that goes back to, um, I guess, anyone with like a strong personality. I, I guess it just there aren't a lot of game designers who who have a strong. Um, vision i guess um but yeah going back to like kojima um who going back even farther referentially i think is is like a video game version of david lynch um (laughs) there's like there's these things that exist side by side that like are just like it'll go so fast from stupid to to just what (laughs) you know Um, (laughs) yeah uh I heard someone describe, uh, it was David Foster Wallace described David Lynch as this, um, existing existence of like the mundane next to the grotesque or just outlandish. So like a serial killer isn't, uh, Lynchian, but the fact that Jeffrey Dahmer kept people's heads in his refrigerator next to mayonnaise jars it is Lynchian. Um, right. And I, I think that's that same that same thing happens in Bloodborne too, where there's like, yeah, you, you see those goofy blue guys, and the and then later on within the expansions with um, the living failures um, are really tragic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um, as regular enemies, those the they're called I think they're called celestial mobs. The uh, right. those little greys, they are silly. And the, you fight a few of them in a couple of different places, like down uh, at the bottom of the uh, Forbidden Woods. But then when you go, when you find Yosefka's clinic and you get back in there, you, I mean, it's, it's up to the player, but you basically can find a bunch of NPCs that you've had conversations with that she has done experiments on and ruined their lives and turned them into these things. And it makes it much more personal because you know who these characters are. Um, and you see that this has happened to these people, and instead of being funny, it's just like, oh man, that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, yeah. It's it really does like what I was saying about the Soul series. It it sort of gets you in all these different emotions, and comedy is one of them, which is weird that it even yeah. does that because it looks like it takes itself so seriously. And there are certain things like that uh, along those lines, uh, and along saying that it's one of my favorite games. I will say that. Uh, Bloodborne is my single favorite, and I think the best pig hole, pig butthole ass ripping simulator on the market. <laughs> I don't think yeah, any absolutely. other game comes close to being able to uh, 
let you rip a pig's asshole out quite as well. <laughs> it is. It's really realistic. <laughs> there, I mean, and they knew what they were doing because there's one part in the game specifically, and it has to be intentionally designed. Oh, like that yeah. pig's butthole is looking you right in the face. Oh, every single uh, time you fight one of those guys, it, the the encounter is designed for you to be able to do that. It's <laughs> yeah. There's no way that it's not. Oh, I'm being invaded by Dark Spirit Zeus. <laughs> it's a um, I like, like the, the viscerals in that game are your hand. It's not like a glitchy yeah. animation thing. It's yeah. your hand is doing it, and that's awesome. Do you think it's like a a, a deeper meaning about uh, commentary on masturbation? <laughs> <laughs> about Harry, just the power of Harry Palms. Yeah, it's got to be. And just the power of uh, our right hands. Yeah. Or, you know, left hands if you're, if you're so inclined. <laughs> Never. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I think, honestly, like... Like, Garamond is one of my favorite boss fights in any of the games. And I like the, the setting under which you fight him. And uh, his story and, and the story of the first hunters and all that, like... It's a really tragic and uh, upsetting story. And an- another game where I feel like, you know, they're not bad guys. They just did stuff that they couldn't live with. And, like, Maria is one of my favorite characters, too. And I love her boss fight as well. But she ends up killing herself out of guilt. And uh, if you pe- if you piece that story together, it's, it's uh, heartbreaking. Um, and the way that it leads into the story from the main game with Garamond and stuff is there's like creepy stuff associated with that with, you know, is the living doll that levels you up? <laughs> is that a representation of Maria yeah. and what exactly has Garamond done to this doll to what extent, how often, and you know, that plays into my masturbation theory. Um, <laughs> right. Which is a great theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that just that, that general, just the story of the hunters and, and when you learn it, the like ambient dialogue with the villagers and stuff, the, the stuff that they say starts to make a lot more sense mm-hmm. where they just are yelling at you to get out and you're not wanted here and, and this is all your fault. Like if you look around, everything sucks and they blame it all on you, but you're just, uh, you, you don't know why, you know, you just come here and shit's fucked up already. Yeah. Um, well, and there's so much of there's so much subtext in that game of which could be cheesy if it was done badly, which it isn't. Of what in here is real, what's a dream? Like, is any of this? There's multiple endings, and there's at least one where you wake up like mm-hmm. like it's a dream. But there's no, and the way that they bookend the game too. When you first start, you are on a table and this guy injects you with blood or whatever and you basically fall asleep and then wake up and the game happens and so it could easily be one of those uh it was all a dream from that point on kind of things yeah Yeah. but there's nothing about the game that feels inconsequential or like that that is a shitty or cheesy way to do it like it it's all dreams within dreams i guess but a great amount of it might be actually happening to you i don't know if there's any way to know that's part of what's great about being up for interpretation in all these games. Yeah, n- none of them are ever clear enough. It's very blurred, all of it. For yeah, for anyone to go on the internet and say this is what happened in this game, because another person can find contradictory stuff to anyone's theories. Um, so yeah, I think that that's cool. I think 
I enjoy art like that, like either movies or, or games or anything where it's less about like the specific, like what happened here and getting those answers uh, and more about just like exploring the, the feelings or the emotion involved in, in being set in this world. Right. What's going on. Um, I think you're experiencing it, that a little bit with watching the leftovers, Roger. Uh, we finished it. Oh, you finished it. We'll have to talk about that later. Yeah, I haven't seen any of it yet. No, I'm yeah, it's a sim- Twin Peaks to return. <laughs> I was going to ask if you were watching old Twin Peaks or new Twin Peaks. I couldn't new remember Twin if Peaks. you had said you were starting. I need to watch old and new Twin Peaks. Yeah, I agree with that. Have you watched any of it? I have watched none of it. You're you're in for an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keith, I made you watch uh, Blue Velvet, right? Yeah, yeah, I've seen Blue Velvet. I liked it a lot. Yeah. It's a fucked up movie. It is. Um, I've never seen that. Or no, no, I have seen that. I have not seen Mulholland Drive. Ooh, have you seen Wild at Heart though? No. Oh, man, is that also Kyle McLaughlin or no? Uh, no, that's Nicholas Cage. <laughs> oh, okay yeah. then. It's <laughs> really good. Well, before we start a David Lynch conversation, let's just yeah, let's finish. wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's wrap it up with Dark Souls 3 and the end, potentially the end of this style of game because Miyazaki claimed that he's done making soul, like, Souls-like games. Did he or uh, did he just say Dark Souls? Like he I, said Souls-like games. But okay. if you remember earlier, I said he was going to make a happier game and ended up making Bloodborne. So. Right. Uh, I don't think he can take him at his word for that, but potentially Dark Souls Three is the end of this for from that studio. Right. So, uh, let's talk about going back to this style of gameplay after experiencing Bloodborne and loving it so much, and me being like, "This is my favorite of these games." Yeah. Um, and I was surprised at how much of a direct sequel it was to the first game where it, it felt like the, the second game almost didn't happen and they were just picking up threads from the first game. Yeah. Um, there's, there's room for two, but I don't feel like two is necessary at all. There's room for yeah. two and there's like in armor sets and things like that, there's lots of references to two. Uh, mm-hmm. And it feels like one feels complete to me. I don't feel like it ever needed sequels, but three feels like the end of the world based on one. Um, And then two just kind of hints that this kind of thing from the beginning to the end has happened thousands and thousands of times. And two is one of those times. Um, So it's like a middle story that you can take or leave um, based on one and three. Uh, I ended up being, I think very satisfied with three as an ending given that, I would have been fine if they never made sequels. Right. Yeah. Um, I think they did a good job of uh, making this feel like the end of this series, at least Dark Souls, and potentially the end of these games from the studio. There's so many other people making Souls-like games now. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I feel like this trend is not going anywhere, and I like that these games are so good that it has spawned a new style of game. People use that term all the time, Souls-like. Right. Um, With varying, I think, varying degrees of success. Like, the yeah. stuff that sure. I really love about these, I have not captured yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they've largely... I have not played Salt and Sanctuary yet. It's on the list. But uh, yeah. but I have not played it, so I can't speak to that one. But a lot of the stuff I've seen from Souls-likes 
kind of seem to miss the point or they try to take a specific thing from it and maybe do that really well and then call that a souls like even though it's missing yeah. a lot of the other things um i you know i'm i definitely look at dark uh, demon souls dark souls bloodborne and dark souls 3 as like the tight examples of it and then dark souls 2 almost is a souls like that doesn't quite hit the mark for me yeah. um, but they as a as a single series these five games i don't think anything else has done what i'm after from i'd love it if somebody came up with one that uh that felt like it fell right in line yeah but i don't see it happening um so do you think that this was like a good what what were the things that carried over from the 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 other Dark Souls games that you thought they did well, and also, do you feel like they pulled anything from Bloodborne going into this? Um, it feels slightly faster than yeah. Dark Souls One, and not Bloodborne fast, but faster for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels smoother. It does, yeah. and it's. And that, I think it's probably. Over- yeah, I think it's probably on the same engine. Like, there's things in the physics that feel very much like. Bloodborne specifically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and they started adding some quicker weapons, like do like the uh, the twin swords you can get in this game, mm-hmm. which was the first for the series. Um, I'm pretty sure, right? They, Dark Souls right Two actually did some neat stuff, which is part of the reason I think people who love PvP like it so much. Um, did some neat stuff that I didn't even realize, like my first playthrough. Um, it has there's weapons called twin blades that I can't remember mm-hmm. if there are any in three, but uh, Twin blades are like a Darth Maul lightsaber, where it's yeah. two swords in one sword, and you spin it around oh, yeah, to attack. Right. There are a few like that, but then you also... They didn't do a dual swords as a single weapon like they did in this. That's a simplified version of what they did in Dark Souls, where you could take any two weapons, and if you held triangle, you would dual wield them in like a special stance. Uh, they called it power stancing, and there were certain weapons that like worked really well with that, and certain ones that didn't. Uh, but basically, the weapon in your right hand, if, or like they had tears or something. There's a lot to it, uh, but you could take like two straight swords if you had like, you know, the sun sword and another one, and get into a power stance, and you basically would stand differently, and you could parry with one, and then when you would attack, you would attack with both weapons. Uh, with your R1 and R2 attacks and stuff like that. And then you'd have like a special L1 and L2 attack. Um, Mm. It was neat, uh, but it was really complex and I can see why they didn't do it again. And I think it was simpler to just make a specific weapon or two kind of do that for three. Um, But I I can, again, I can also see why people who love Dark Souls 2 would be like, ugh, three isn't as good. It doesn't have this stuff. Um, Yeah. But yeah, that's that's something I never put a whole lot of time into messing with, but I did see it and think it was cool. I think 3 brought a lot of the like life back to the series that I, yeah. that I thought was missing from 2 and was so prevalent in, in Bloodborne. And one of the things I like about the bosses in, in 3 and in Bloodborne is that as you fight them, uh, you feel a natural sense of the boss's uh, desperation as they understand that you are going to most likely kill them. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and uh it's just it's part of it is the the animation is so good in both of those games uh especially in bloodborne with all the beasts with all like the hair and shit all over them um that you could really feel that those characters felt alive uh yeah 
in a way that other video game bosses felt that it's fun like they're fun to fight but you can you can almost like at a certain point see the programming of like okay you've done this much damage now something else is going to click over i remember it felt like natural i don't remember if that's already in bloodborne or not but i remember reading an article before three came out that they specifically were doing that and they were in the preview build or whatever they were talking about they were talking about the dancer of boreal valley and Mm. it is there's like a specific thing in dark souls 3 where when you get a boss halfway down and it probably happens to some bosses like a couple times like maybe it happens at a third and two thirds or something but they do they go through like a transformation of now they will start doing attacks like this and i know there are things like that in bloodborne but i don't think it was like a game-wide uh objective the way it seems to be in this where every boss has like a couple of stages to them where you can see them start freaking out and attacking you in new new and more intense ways after you've gotten them a certain way down um but it is it's really fun like it was a neat addition and adds it adds difficulty but it more just adds fun to the gameplay yeah and I, I felt like a lot of the bosses had more character mm-hmm. and, and I wanted to know their stories more than in two, which ended up being a lot of just like large nights. Yes. A lot of that. So. Yeah. Two. So you can. Two felt like okay. it was catering to that PVP crowd and even like even down to that where most of the enemies were humanoid and it felt like that's how they designed the fighting was to fight other people. And so a lot of the bosses yeah. were knights. Yeah. Um, I think the addition of like different shield abilities and weapon abilities, like special attacks for the weapons was also pretty cool. And uh, I think a risky thing to do because I think parrying was such a part of the like gameplay in the rest of the games. Yeah. Um, Especially with Bloodborne being the last one and forcing parrying on everybody as opposed to being able to block. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it, it seems like a crazy step to then come back to souls and be like, uh, now you're going to have these kinds of shields and they won't parry at all. You'll have these weapon skills instead. Um, Which I feel like in 3, I parry the least in Dark Souls 3. Oh, yeah. Probably because of that system. Yeah, I don't parry at all. Yeah, I've rarely parried the whole time I've been playing the game. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something I went out of my way to be good at in the first game. Even trying to see if I could do it with certain bosses. Uh, It was fun to be able to pull it off then. Yeah. Um, and in Bloodborne, you really develop it as a skill. Yeah, mm. it's a necessary skill. It is. Yeah, yeah you. Yeah. Be, it's the only defensive, offensive, defensive maneuver you have besides dodging. Yeah. Um, I thought the DLC in this game, other than Bloodborne, was my favorite, just because I thought the narrative in Bloodborne's DLC was really strong. But yeah. I thought the DLC in this game was a really satisfying way to wrap up this game story and to call back to the first game yep. that pe- people have a very a nice uh a good great fondness of i think yeah and for those that like berserk it's uh like there's a lot of berserk references from demon souls all the way up and mm. there's some really neat ones i think it was a satisfying way to end end the series with some cool obvious berserk stuff um yeah given that that was part of the impetus for the design. Mm. Um, so yeah, if there's anything specifically you guys want to talk about with three, I think we can begin to wrap it up. Um, go ahead, Roger, if you have anything. Um, 
No, you got you guys say something. I'm sure something will come. Um, the world I like these cape physics. Yes, yeah. Well, that's like you were talking about the fur and stuff, like that Bloodborne engine. Like the fabric and fur in both of these games just looks stellar. <laughs> and there's yeah. there's definitely a stiffness in Dark Souls One and Two that Three and Bloodborne don't have. Like they they're so much nicer. I would love to see without really changing anything about the physics of the gameplay and stuff, I'd love to see an HD remake of uh, Dark Souls 1 or Demon Souls that like had this kind of graphical polish to it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, and just as a little uh, fun anecdote, my girlfriend thinks all, all you do in this game is roll around, because I think that's all she's ever seen me do <laughs> when I played this game. Yep. Um, it's a lot of what you do. It's not yeah. all, but it's a lot. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I, this is all she knows the game is. Um, all right, cool. Well, uh, this has been really fun, and I want to thank you guys for joining me this week as Sam is preparing for his wedding, and we needed to fill some time slots. Uh, thanks for doing this with me, guys. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, thank Anytime. You. We'll have to do another one with Metal Gear sometime. Metal Gear, that's uh, the one. Um, be sure to check the show out on uh, iTunes and Podbean and subscribe and like and all that stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Double Jump Chump and the show at Satisfaction underscore. Um, and yeah, I'm bad at ending, so you guys give it a go. Um, well, Dark Souls and Bloodborne, they're all bad at endings too, so <laughs> it works. <laughs> Well, bye. <laughs> <laughs>